thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to listen, uh, help us to be humble in what we hear. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together this morning as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you got a chance to read through or read ahead maybe in 1 Timothy. Maybe you got a chance to read through the whole thing. So there's six chapters. You can probably do it on a pretty easily on a rainy afternoon, such as this afternoon. Um, you can do that. Uh, please do that. If you get a chance, read ahead. Uh, read it a few times. It'll be very helpful to do. I wonder what you thought. Did Tom's question last week of Christian extremists resonate around as you uh, read it, bounce around in your head? Are we Christian extremists? And Tom gave, well, the Bible gave a good answer in chapter 1, verse 5. The command is love. Um, another question you might have as you read through was why? Why did Paul write this letter to Timothy, who was this youngish? What was, what was he, uh, Tom, in his um, first, what was to say? Well, I was in my third or fourth generation of young person. Um, he was in his, so he was, he was a young, uh, a youngish man, probably about 30 ish. Uh, but at Ephesus, why did Paul write this letter to Timothy? Well, we're told, aren't we? Remember in chapter 3, and if you've got your Bible, flip over to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And it's, if you've got a church Bible, it's 1,175. We're told that Paul writes, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, so he's not with them, obviously, you will, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. How did you hear that? There's God's household. It's the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So God's household, the church, it's not the building, but people called to God through trusting in the Lord Jesus. That's us here today, isn't it? That's what we gather to do. We're, we're God's church. It's the same God, same word, same church, God's church. Now, this letter is about recognising what this is. That's what it is. This group of people is. Some of us have been members here for many, many years. Uh, some of us have been members here for just a few months. Do you know how precious this is? Do you? Do you know how precious this is? Well, last week, we read that Paul urged Timothy to guard this, to guard it, because it's precious. In fact, Paul urges Timothy in, in chapter 1, verse 3, so if you've got your Bible, flick back to that if you like. 1, verse 3, to command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Now, more literally, you could sort of say, not to teach differently. That's what it is, a literal translation. In other words, not to teach differently than the Apostle Paul. Now, one of the problems facing God's church at Ephesus his household, is that certain people with their own agendas were teaching differently than the apostle. Paul says they were ignorant. In other words, they did not know what they were talking about. He said at the end of verse 7. And there was harmful. These, this false teaching that, had, that was being crept into this church at Ephesus was poison in God's household. It would cause a grave sickness if left unchecked. So let me ask you a question as we, as we begin. What do you think makes for a healthy church? What do you think makes for a healthy church? 
It's a phrase that gets thrown around a bit. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, it's a healthy church. You hear people say, well, well, oh, lots of young people. That makes for a healthy church. Uh, we've got a fair few young people, haven't we? we um, we've had to split our crèche. There we go. That must say something. And we've had to make rules about kids on bikes. Um, are we a healthy church? Or some say a healthy church is a full building. People struggling to find a seat. There's plenty of seats on the front row. Um, or maybe it's a balanced budget. That, that makes for a healthy church. Are we a healthy church or are we sick? Let's come back to that question in a few moments' time. Well, last week, again, we were introduced to these false teaching, these false teachers in Ephesus. Uh, and so in verse 8, well, Paul responds to that. Let's see it in verse 8 there. Let me just take a moment to illustrate what's, what Paul's about to do. Okay, this might help. Uh, and then we'll get to the nitty-gritty of his response, right? So I want you to imagine for a moment a beautiful garden. Beautiful garden. There's many in Robertson. But over the years, it's been neglected. Uh, now, if you need a concrete example to imagine that, just imagine the rectory garden. If you'd like to do that, that'd be fine. Um, the veggie patch and the, and, the, and the berry patch, imagine that. Um, there, there, so all sorts of weeds have sprung up and completely uh, obscured from view many of the amazing flowers and plants and berries and so forth that had originally been planted. Someone addressing the needs of the garden would have to get involved with the hard work of dealing with all the weeds and tending the flowers so that they're back on display for all to see. However, they might also need to sack the gardeners responsible for the negligence. Now, that doesn't work right now. If you're following that example of the rectory garden, just ignore that for a minute. Um, this is what Paul does in the passage. Okay? So he identifies what's wrong in terms of the false teaching. And he seeks to put the beauty and wonder of, well, of the gospel, of the garden, back on display for all to see. And finally, well, he's already dismissed two of the church leaders for their negligence, this guy called Alexander and Hymenaeus. So let's get back into the nitty-gritty and see how Paul does that in his, in his argument. So if you've got your Bible there, that paragraph, verses 8 to 11, and also looking back at verses 4 to 7, we find three characteristics of these false teachers. And I think they're three characteristics which are likely to be common to a lot of false teaching that we come across today. Here's the first. These people were insiders. They were insiders. If they were not church leaders, then they were wannabe church leaders. They were members of the church who were known to people. So we're not talking about big groups or other religious groups or cults or whatever you want to call them, like the, the, the Mormons or JWs, uh, who teach falsely about Jesus. And we wouldn't regard them as part of our church. No, no, no. We're, the example here is these people in Ephesus, they were insiders. They were part of things. Verse 5 tells us that they've wandered away from the faith. They had wandered from a pure heart. That means their hearts have been polluted by worldly things. And they had wandered from a good conscience or a clear conscience. You could, write, you could put it that way. 
A good conscience, that is, knowing their sins are forgiven. They've wandered away from that. They've wandered away from good things, a pure heart, to, well, worldly things. That's the first thing. So they're insiders. The second thing about those characteristics, about these people in Ephesus, these false teachers, was that they were Bible people. Do you notice in verse 7, they wanted to be teachers of the law? And in 2 Timothy, in the next, uh, in the next book, possibly the same false teachers are being referred to. But these false teachers have a form of godliness, but denying its power. So in other words, they're people who look religious. They get their Bibles open and they use their Bible. It's false teaching based on the Bible. Did you hear that? A lot of you are hearing other things right now. Focus here. Come with me. Come on. Uh, uh, it's false teaching based on the Bible. Now that should go, hold on, wait up, slow down. What did you say? You should have done that just then. False teaching based on the Bible. You see, that makes it especially dangerous. And perhaps it is something that we wouldn't normally label as false teaching. We might hear it in a sermon. You might hear it in your Bible study group. There's a biblical claim. There's a bit of God talk. And so it sounds legit, you know. And then, and then in 2 verse 7, it comes with such confidence. Say it confidently, people believe you. Well, that's what happens. And the reality is this type of teaching is more common than we realise. Third, Paul says they're wrong. So let's think and pick this up. In, uh, let's, let's find out why they were wrong. Verse 8. We know, Paul responds, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We'll stop there for a minute. We're not entirely sure what the false teaching was in Ephesus. Not really. I'll have a guess in a moment. But we're not really sure. It had something to do with their focus on the Old Testament law, generally the first five books of the Old Testament, but I think the Ten Commandments are referred to in a moment. You see, so they're very biblical, very biblical, but wrong. The problem was their use of the law. They didn't use it properly, end of verse 8. You see, false teaching is most dangerous when there's a pinch of truth to it. Now, if we just read verse 7, just as is, that is, if the false teachers were primarily teaching the law, then clearly the law is bad, right? That, that sort of fits logically. But Paul says in verse 8, no, 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 the law is good. In fact, in Romans 7, he says the law is holy. The law is good. The Old Testament law is good. It's, ho it's, it's holy. The point is, though, even the law of God is not good if we don't use it properly. That's the same with our Bibles, isn't it? When we bring our own agenda, our own framework, ideas to the Bible, and then we massage it, we massage the meaning into what we would like to hear, well, even the Bible can be not good if we don't use it properly. And I tell you, that's not terribly hard to do. To massage things and say it with confidence, and then people believe you. We, we, when, when used wrongly, we can use the Bible to justify my drifting along to the culture of the day. So Paul continues, verse 9. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreak for lawbreakers and rebels and the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. 
for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality. Uh, by the way, some translations have um, perverts there. That's an unfortunate word and not a very good word, I don't think. Um, a much more correct translation, you see it come up in um, the, the older NIV, actually, in the 84 NIV and the ESV and other better translations. It'll say the practice of homosexuality. So if you want to have a question about that at any point, you know what to do, put it in the box and we'll talk about it next week. But we'll, we'll, it's a better word than, than pervert. I think that's a, not a very good word um, for today's culture. So for slave traders, for liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the, to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel, the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Here's my guess at what these false teachers were saying. And, and I think you could probably guess with me. I don't think it's that difficult. They were saying, to be a Christian, you have to live a righteous life. You have to study God's law. You have to have knowledge. And if you've got a Bible there, skip it over to uh, chapter 6, verse 20, but leave your finger in the first, uh, first chapter. 6, verse 20, Paul concludes his letter, and he says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas, so opposing to, the, to Paul's to the apostles' teaching, opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. See, I think that's what, at the heart of what's going on here. These false teachers were saying, you need a higher knowledge. You need to know God's law because that's the way you're going to be righteous. So study it. Uh, commit to it. And Paul even says the law had then become meaningless talk. Uh, controversies were focused on rather than what the law is actually there for as a means by God's grace of transformation. So they were saying, keep the Ten Commandments. That's the key to living a life pleasing to God. But Paul says, no, 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 no. The law won't make you righteous. It won't make you righteous. The law shows you up to be sinful. It convicts us of our sin and in this way leads us to Christ. And so Paul in verses 9 and 10 provides this graphic list of people where the law does its job. It identifies. It condemns. That's what the law does. It's doing its job. It leads people to the need for forgiveness. And so in the end, these false teachers are wrong about what's needed. And it's contrary to sound teaching. This different teaching that's poison in the church. And the medicine they need is the healthy teaching what Paul calls sound doctrine. So how do we know what that is? How do we know what sound teaching is? Well, look at verse 11, chapter 1. It conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Now, what is this glorious gospel? Well, he'll go on to explain this by his own story. Paul's life is a demonstration of this glorious gospel. So verse 12. Paul thanks Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, is verse 12, that he has considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Paul thinks back to his Damascus Road experience where he was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus, where he became a Christian, where he went from being Saul to Paul. There's a note of me of all people God chose, even though, verse 13, I was a blasphemer, and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out of me abundantly 
along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, blasphemy here is not a reference to him stubbing his toe when he comes out of the bathroom. All right? No, no, no. This, he was a violent man who was opposing God. He was anti-Jesus in every way. Persecuted and killing Christians. He spoke against Jesus and was violently opposed to anyone who was for him. This was the man that God entrusted with his glorious gospel. This man. Oh. Now, I tell you what, I, we find that surprising, don't we? Come on, of course we do. This man who did that? We could have chosen a fourth, you know, a bit more of a straight down the line sort of middle guy, couldn't we? Rather than this radical, this man, this sinful, openly opposing God man, we might find that surprising, but it's in perfect character with the gospel. It's perfectly in character with the gospel. God takes what's broken and he makes it new. That's the gospel. That's the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was shown mercy and grace, bringing him to faith, which means trust in Jesus Christ as saviour. And the grace of God, look at verse 14, a great word, abundantly. It was poured out on him abundantly. It's a picture of water cascading down a mountain. Think Billmore Falls right now or the church driveway. Um, water cascading down a mountain. Overflowing at the sides. It's an abundance. That's how the grace of Jesus is described. It's a picture of excess, of being overwhelmed by the refreshing waters of grace unleashed in the gospel. Paul says, if the leader of sinners, and that's what I am the worst refers to, if the leader of sinners, the one who opposed God, the one who killed Christians, who is this violent man, if he can come to trust in the Lord Jesus, well then, if he can be shown mercy, well then anyone can. But there's something else going on here as well. In showing how the gospel has been entrusted to him, Paul reminds them of his authority as an apostle who has the authority to correct and admonish them. Now, in your notes, there's a little box. We're going to take a little time of a... It's not quite a tangent, but it sort of is. And You tell me at the end if it's not or not, if it is or not. I don't know. We're going to take a bit of time to step aside. One of the first problems... We'll come back to that other... Jesus has been the prototype in a minute, right? We'll come back to that and what that means. But one of the first problems people have to grapple with when reading this letter, and I guess any letter of Paul's, and it's been a problem even from the first time Paul appeared on the scene, is that many people have a problem with Paul. It's common for people to set Paul over and against Jesus. It happens. I'm a Jesus guy, they say. I'm on about Jesus. I'm not too keen on Paul. The truth is, Paul is a Jesus guy too. Now, have you ever come across this? You might have. Um, I have, a fair bit. The teaching of Jesus, well, that's loving. It's warm. It's simple. It's uncontroversial. You know? But then came along Paul. And it got complicated. got harsh. It got hard. Ever heard of this sort of thing? Someone once said to me, only recently, uh, I want more of Jesus, not Paul. I want more of Jesus, not Paul. 
Uh, and then, of course, well, there's Paul's teaching on women. Whew, oh, we really want to follow Jesus' teaching on women, not Paul's. Perhaps you've heard of that. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks' time. Well, friends, that's an ignorant attitude. Uh, and it comes from not understanding the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul. Come back to me if you've got your Bible there to chapter 1, verse 1. First thing we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Look at what Paul says about himself. You see it there? It's either right or it's wrong. If it's wrong, well, you have to do this carefully, but tear out all Paul's letters in your Bible. If it's wrong, that's what you need to do. Because he's so deluded that he's dangerous. But if this sentence is right, then you cannot adopt the anti-Paul attitude, whether you're in 21st century Robertson or you're in 1st century Ephesus. Paul, sent by Jesus, that's what apostle means, sent by Jesus Christ by the command of God, appointed to Jesus' service, the gospel has been entrusted to him. Sent by Jesus by the command of God. Whether we like it or not, we cannot accept Jesus and reject his apostle. You cannot have Christianity without Paul because he's the apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God. The teaching of the apostle has exactly the same authority as the teaching of Jesus. Now, I don't want to harp on about it, but that's why I don't like red-letter Bibles. And I've got one right here. <laughs> It's hard to find a big print Bible. This is an old one. Without, but see, the, the red letters, they, they, they sort of confuse us. It's unhelpful. They make us think that the words of Jesus are more important than the words of any other apostle. Um, as if the words of Jesus are more important than those he, he required by, to be spoken by his apostle. That's why I'm not a big fan. So if you've got a red letter Bible, just be aware. That's all. You don't have to go and throw it out. Just be aware. Okay, should we get back to this glorious gospel having been demonstrated in Paul's life? Um, let's, let's hear it again in verse 15. Listen to these words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus, verse 15, came into the world to save sinners. Note the emphasis here, though. The emphasis is this is a gospel for all. That's what deserves full acceptance means. It's worthy of acceptance by all. It can be accepted by all, anyone. Your neighbour, your workmate, your footy team, well, your member of your footy team, your family member, anyone, anywhere. In Robertson, in Burrowang, in Sydney, in Australia, the world. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come into the world to save Christians. God has shown mercy to sinners like Paul. 
And if the leader of sinners, the one, remember, who led that great opposition to God, if he can be shown mercy, then this gospel is worthy of acceptance by all, every single person in the world. And, and then, as Tom uh, helpfully pointed out last week, sometimes Paul slips into Disney movie um, uh, role and uh, he, he, he slips into song. And so verse 17, I'm not going to attempt to do this in, the, in a song, but that's what it is. He gets carried away. Yes, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says that in response to this glorious gospel. See, Paul is... He's, he's more than an example. He's a prototype of what it means to be a Christian. You see, it's about Christ's initiative. When you follow Jesus, when you be, say you're a Christian person, when you believe in the Lord Jesus, it's about Christ's initiative. In verse 15, we see it. It's about acknowledging our personal sin. 15 and 16. In verse 16, it's centred on Christ, Jesus' unlimited patience, the grace of God. That's what it means to be a Christian person. And it's played out in the life of Paul. Well, now let's go back to Timothy in Ephesus with this glorious gospel in mind. So Paul's charge to Timothy, fight the good fight. Verse 18. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. I take it that's just a, a reference to things that people said about Timothy's leadership a while back. Um, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be, not, to be taught not to blaspheme. So the one who has accepted the glorious gospel has a fight on their hands. It's a good fight. This picture of warfare, it pops up now and then, isn't it? That's why we're calling it guardians of the gospel. Um, it's a picture of warfare, and it pops up several times in the letter. Hand-to-hand -hand combat is needed. Rather than ignore the threat and retreat from battle, no, 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 he's not told to do that. It's a picture of fierce struggle for the soul of the church. That's what Timothy's got in front of him now. Hold on to this faith, this trust in Jesus, Hold on to a good conscience. Remember, there are two ways to think about this. Knowing that you're forgiven, that you've received God's grace and mercy, that you're washed clean of sin. But there's another way we think about this too, that your, your desire, you have a desire to live a life pleasing to God who has shown us mercy, a good conscience. Hold on to that. Don't wander from it. Don't wander from this glorious gospel. It's not hard to find examples, is it? Of people who have done that? I know, lots. Lots of people who have wandered from this glorious gospel. It doesn't usually happen overnight. It's usually just bit by bit, slowly stepping away. But the result is, see verse 19, they've shipwrecked their faith. What an image. And that's what's going on. A ship ignoring all the signals. A ship who ignores the charts. A ship who ignores the lighthouses. And then plunging into the rocks with disastrous consequences. 
Remember this, uh, this guy got put in jail for this. It's exactly what this guy did, the, the, the uh, Costa Concordia. He ignored the signs. And rather than follow, let's just call it the gospel of the charts, he cut corners. And he did things his own way. And as a consequence, I think it was about 34 people died. Lives were lost. That's the image that Paul sticks in our head about these people who have wandered from the faith. They've wandered from a good conscience. Don't be that person. So Paul says to Timothy, in God's household, take action. Don't ignore what's happening around him. Don't sweep it under the carpet. This God's church is too precious. Fight because you've, dis- you've seen the disaster of Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know much about them. But Paul's seen them. They wanted to do, they wanted something other than the gospel, something other than, a faith, than faith and a good conscience. And then Paul had to exclude them from the church. I take it that's what hand them over to Satan means. Well, friends, let's, let's try to tie a few things together. Let me ask you a question, though. When we hear the word of God, what do you expect will happen? Expect's going to happen. See, one Timothy is going to present us challenges as God's church, if it, and, and will today. God's word will call us to live differently. God's word will call us to have a different outlook, uh, different values. So I reckon there's two types of people here today. Uh, one, for some of us, I'd love you to hear this glorious gospel and respond to it and accept it. Hear the word of God and respond to it and accept it. Maybe today for the first time. And know that it's worthy of your acceptance. Remember, if Paul can trust in Jesus, then you can too. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. Now you might have some questions. You might want to talk about it, and that's really good. Uh, Come and see me, seek out some help. But don't dismiss this glorious gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save you. Don't walk away from that. Don't turn your back on that. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, and just like Paul, have received eternal life, the question I want to ask you is, do we really believe this glorious gospel? Do we really believe it? Do we? Really? Or could it be that for all the long time that many of us have come to church here or other churches, for all the reputation we have as Christian leaders, for all our reputation as a growing church with lots of young people, a healthy budget, we even have seating issues on the odd Sunday. We've got to put out more chairs got a reputation. Could it be that we're wandering from this glorious gospel? Remember what the apostle wrote in verse 15? The glorious gospel is for all. Now, do we believe that? Do we? Let me run a little test by you. By me too. Uh, now, this is something I often hear. And, um, and let's put this in the context of our mission coming up. We've got a month of mission coming up leading up to Easter. People will say about whether I'm going to go and 
have a gospel conversation with someone, whether I'm going to go and talk to them about Jesus. And I've heard people say, said it to me, well, oh, he wouldn't be interested. Oh, no, they're, actually, they're not really ready for it. Why not? Why not? People aren't ready for the glorious gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Who isn't ready for that? Who's not ready for that? Oh, it's a little bit awkward, you know? Might get a bit of of pushback. I don't don't want to push the friendship either. Awkward about the glorious gospel of that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Are we healthy or are we sick? Submission 2020 is coming up. uh, And we're asking, I think God's asking, for one more step. One further step in sharing the gospel. That could be lots of things. It could be that T-shirt you're going to wear. Who knows? Or the singlet at the gym. I'm praying that I'll get some good conversations from that. Uh, That'll be great. Maybe you will invite a friend to church or uh, one of those men, the men's event, the men's events, beer and Jesus. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? In my shed. I've got to clean up my shed. I might need a working party to help me with that. Anyway. um, Or the women's event. Sounds really great. I can't remember what they're doing, but it sounds, looks really good. Well, it's got, a, it's got a bowl and they put it together and stuff. Yeah, it's really good. Broken and fixed. There's the gospel. There's Paul. Sounds really good. Maybe you'll give your neighbour a, a book or something to explain the gospel to them or a conversation. Maybe you give them something to read. Maybe you'll suggest a podcast and then come back later and ask them how they went. And this applies to me as much as you guys. But are we healthy or are we sick? You see, this is the measure The measure is not how many young people we have or whether we can split crash. That's not the measure. The measure is not a healthy budget or how many chairs we put out. It's got to do with the place of the glorious gospel in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. That the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you invite people along to church? Now, you'd have no trouble inviting people along to your club or to play soccer or watch the band uh, or whatever, but do you invite people along to church? Why not? Why not? If you don't, and I know a number of us do, but if you don't, why not? Why is that not part of your agenda for every friend that you have, every workmate, every member of your family, to get them along to church to hear the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think they're ready for it. Not ready for the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Who's not ready for that? Who's not ready for that? Feel a bit awkward about it? Why? Are we healthy or are we sick? Friends, the measure of our health is the place of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as among us. See, I... I, we could say we're in danger, really? Because we have a reputation for being healthy. People often say to me, ah, oh, things are happening out there at Robbo, great. There's a problem with reputations, isn't there? A great problem with having a reputation. Read the letters that Jesus writes to those churches in Revelation. There's one actually to Ephesus. There's a bit of homework for you. How about we pray? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word to us today 
And um, Lord, we pray that we would be, we would have that glorious gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We would have that to be impacting our, our lives, our thoughts, our actions, everything. Lord, we don't want to be sick as a church. We want to be healthy. And that's having the gospel front and centre in everything we do. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. We, we know we've got some challenges today and some things to think and act on. We pray that you'd help us. And uh, Lord, we pray that as we go to morning tea pretty soon, that you would um, help us to talk about it, encourage one another. And we thank you for this precious gift the church is. Amen. Now, don't forget, if you want to have a, ask a question,